0: Hello, everyone, and thank you again for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Lillian Sue, and I'm one of the executive producers of the PCICS podcast. I'm happy to bring to you part two of our latest episode, where Chris Noll and I interview Dr. James DeNardo of Boston Children's. Enjoy.
1: Switching gears a little bit. And the next question, getting back to your comment earlier that everybody that works in an ICU should be a physiologist first. Having had the privilege of training at Boston Children's and having exposure to multiple training backgrounds in the CBSU as a trainee, would you mind commenting on that model of how the cardiac anesthesiology and colleagues integrate into the CBSU at Boston Children's?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We've had a long tradition at Children's of having Anesthesia um, personnel in the ICU, right? Going back, you know, as um Dave Wessel, then Peter Lawson, um, then me, th- and now we've got Doug Atkinson and Lee Ferguson. You know, we've had a long, well, long, relatively speaking, tradition of having those people of having cardiac anesthesia people involved. Um, I think You know, one of the things that um, is a little disappointing to me at this point is time was, um, you know, if you were a cardiac anesthesiologist, your training and background would be such that, you know, you could step relatively easy and easily into the ICU setting, um, you know, based on... um, your understanding of physiology and getting familiar with the drugs and things, you know, I mean, you wouldn't want me in your lipid clinic. um, But, you know, handling um, physiologic issues in a cardiac ICU is relatively, um, I don't want to say a simple thing to do, but a thing that, you know, that we all had a lot of comfort with. We're, you know, I worry that we're getting a little bit away from that. Um, In that, you know, the rigorousness that's required to understand that, um, I don't know that we're actually doing as good a job of that in pediatric cardiac anesthesia as we should be, Um, in part because um, anesthetic techniques have become so relatively safe um, that you know, the choice of anesthetic agents for that group of patients is relatively small. The principles are pretty straightforward. And, you know, the nuances of the physiology can oftentimes, I don't want to say be overlooked, but people don't necessarily pay quite as much attention to it as they could. I, you know, I think from the cardiac anesthesia point of view, that has to, we have to continue to require that rigorousness. Um, I mean, I think as far as, you know, what cardiac anesthesia people can bring to the ICU setting um, is uh, the, se- the sense of pace, um, if you're an anesthesiologist versus an ICU person, is completely different. I mean, having done, you know, both for 20 plus years, um, you know, there are things in the ICU um, that, in, that, from the perspective of a cardiac anesthesia person, take way too long, like way, way too long. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are things that need to take a while um, that are managed in an ICU. And so the one, I, I think the thing, you know, one of the things I think cardiac anesthesia people could potentially or do potentially bring to the ICU, for instance, you know, is the our comfort level with um, moving people along from mechanical ventilation to extubation is something, you know, we do every day. I mean, people think we don't wake anybody up, but, you know, all you have to do is spend a day with us in the cath lab, you know, where we do... You know, 15 or 20 cases and a bunch of them are newborns who are pretty sick, have a, you know, pretty, um, aggressive intervention and get woken up at the end. Um, you know, we have a high comfort level with that. The other part of that though is, you know, part of being an ICU person that I think is really hard and has gotten a lot, lot harder is and don't get me wrong, I don't think it's a bad thing, but there is engagement of so many people um, in the care of patients in the ICU now. So many people are empowered to have an opinion about the patient's trajectory, including the family, which I think is a good thing, having families involved. But, you know, honestly, um, at, at times that, I honestly believe that that just prolongs the process of moving people along. Because, if you, you know, if you're an anesthesiologist and you're in the cath lab and you decide you want to extubate a patient, you don't need to have a conversation with anybody, like zero you're not, you know, getting the input of a respiratory therapist. You're not getting the input of a bedside nurse. You're not getting the input of the family who, you know, is saying, well, you know, the last time we were here, he was intubated for a week and I don't really think you should do that. I think that's very difficult. I think that, that you know, that's why I see people get worn down and why, it, you know, um people often say, well, you know, you guys don't, do as much service as like, um, you know, cardiac anesthesia people and having lived both lives, it's just really exhausting and, um, emotionally and, you know, physically tiring to do that and to balance all those opinions, but still, you know, have to be under pressure of moving patients along. It's very hard. And I think it's gotten much harder. Um, you know, it was way, it's way harder than when I started, when there wasn't quite as much involvement. So I, I don't know what you do with that. I, I also think you, the ICU, you know, and I don't know what the answer to this is, but I can tell you that the training model, you know, in anesthesia for trainees, even for cardiac anesthesia fellows, is, you know, they're our fellows are like nano managed till the minute they finish their fellowship there there is an attending over their shoulder providing you know minute to minute interaction till the minute they walk out the door and you know people say well you can't do that because you know they'll never learn to fly on their own but i can tell you from personal experience of having done that for 20 years, you know, most of the people we hire, or I've, when I was responsible for it, that I hired to our group were people that trained in our group. And the minute they finished, they were perfectly competent, you know, to be able to do what they needed to do, even though they'd been, you know, micro nano managed. And, you know, so we come from a world where, you know, fellows have like very, I don't want to say they don't have a lot of autonomy, but they have really strictly supervised autonomy, which is a really, really different model than ICU training. And I, I don't know what you do with that. That's
0: interesting. It's almost a form of deliberative feedback, but constantly and down to scan- nano micro behavior. Yep. But maybe by the end of it, they've gotten so much feedback that they've incorporated it that they can then fly on that. Yeah.
2: I, and, you know, I think the advantage to that, too, I mean, the thing that makes that possible in anesthesia, particularly in the operating room, is it's one-on-one, which is different, right, than an ICU where there's five different fellows and there's nobody, you can't be doing that
0: one on one
2: right to five people simultaneously right so it's a different model but you know i don't think it's a bad model i mean i and and it's one of the things i worry about um you know in the current system that's very demanding it's very demanding of input of of throughput it's very demanding of outcomes very de- there's metrics for everything and you know if you're a cardiac, pediatric cardiac ICU attending, you know, you're held accountable for all of that, um, and rightly so, to the institution and to the parents and to the kid. But at the same time, you know, you've got this responsibility to be training people and providing autonomy. You have responsibility, you know, to, to granting the bedside nurse autonomy, You have responsibility for granting the respiratory therapist autonomy. And, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure how you balance that with the demand for more throughput, shorter lengths of stay, um, and, you know, comprehensive medical education. I I, I just don't know.
0: Well, I'm glad you find that challenging because I also find that very challenging (laughs) It's a challenging time, I
2: think. Yeah, and, I, you know, I don't know. Does it require a different training method? Um, Or, or, you know, are we just going to be permanent victims of, you know, hospital systems that are, um, you know, let's face it, they're very business-oriented. They're very sensitive to throughput and cost and length of stay and all the rest of it. Which I think at times is completely contrary to, you know, the other missions that you're, um, you know, that you have to take to heart. So, I I, I don't know. I mean, I think that for, you know, the ICU community is a huge challenge.
1: Compounded for some of us by being early career attendings, which makes the whole thing even more nerve-wracking.
2: When you... Yeah, no, it's it's difficult. And, you know, how much autonomy do you grant people and still be accountable for, you know, the outcome that everybody wants? Yeah, that's that's tough. So given those
1: comments, do you have general advice for trainees either in pediatric cardiac anesthesia or pediatric cardiac intensive care?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my advice about, you know, to anyone... I I think again and I'm biased by this you know most of um most of what we know about physiology and um uh you know was figured out by guys that were way smarter than us in the 50s and 60s nothing has changed um and I think there's a lot to be said you know for getting very very familiar with that kind of stuff and I, I, the one thing I always tell people and you know any any physiologist would tell you this is you know you look at a patient and you have a a hypothesis um you have in mind a circulatory model you know you look at all their lesions you look at their residual lesion burden you look at their function and you put that together in a physiologic package which isn't very difficult to do cuz you know the physiologic principles And you say to yourself, okay, well, you know, I can predict that this patient will do very poorly with high airway pressures based on what I know about, you know, their physiology and what their lesion burden is. And so, you know, I need to gear my management towards avoiding that and, you know, whatever else there might be. And and then, you know, and then you run with that model until the model doesn't work anymore. And then you say to yourself, okay, well, maybe the model is eighty percent right. You know, how do I modify my model in my head um, based on the new data and then i c and then you come up with a new model and you know I think if you do that even for the simplest of patients um, you you can almost predict what's going to happen when you do certain things, and when certain things do happen, you're not surprised by it um you know, if you know if you know if someone has horrible diastolic dysfunction and is horribly hypertrophied, you know you can predict that that's not going to be the kid that you're going to get away with. You know, your one day diuresis of three hundred mLs for you know chest wall edema, right? It's not going to happen. You, you, there's no way you're going to get away with that. So, you know, the issue becomes, okay, well, if that's what I want to do, you know, how do I, I, knowing that's my model, what do I do um, to get away with, if you will, getting 300 mLs off a kid like that? Well, okay, you know, I'm going to have to accept the fact that I'm probably going to have to use, you know, more vasopressor and inotropic therapy than the kid needs, I know he doesn't need it. I know the surgeon pissed off that my kid doesn't need, you know, um dopamine or epi or norepi. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you want to diurese 300 cc's of fluid off this baby in a day and a half, that's the, what you're going to have to accept. Otherwise, we're going to be here, you know, four days from now having the same conversation. And I think, you know... Getting people to think that way um, then makes the rest of it, at least in my mind, a little bit easier, right? And then, you know, you know what tools you have, right? You know what diuretics you like, you know how you like to leverage them, you know whether you like boluses, you know whether you like infusions. I don't think any of that matters all that much. I think that's the kind of stuff people should have autonomy for. But the fact of the matter is the model doesn't change. The model's the model right? The kid has a certain circulation, which is predictable. You can draw a little picture of it. And then the question is, how do you want to go about this? Um, but I think if people think that way, then it becomes, at least in my mind, it's way more fun. And, you know, um, challenging in a good way. And it also gives you a way, you know, of explaining yourself to, you know, the surgeon who's unhappy with the way the patient's being managed, right? It's like, you want to dispute the model, let's dispute the model, right? I mean, if you know something I don't know, if something happened that I don't know about and you think there's another lesion here, let's talk about it. But if this is what we're talking about, then let's just walk through it because here's what we got. And, you know, now we can have an intelligent discussion about what's more important to you.
1: Take home points that you would like to communicate to our listeners that are include nurses, NPs, respiratory therapists about how cardiac anesthesia can assist them or be meaningful in their training and their growth.
2: Um, yeah, I think you know uh, the other place that um, the insight of the cardiac anesthesia people is helpful is if you you know if you recognize that again you know we're used to we're used to this like accelerated time frame right you know where things happen in the operating room and we gain you know we we have to formulate our model on a very short to beat that no pun intended model to death we we have to develop our model relatively quickly um because things are happening relatively quickly and i think you know taking the time when you When you do sign out to get a sense from the anesthesia people of what they think the current model is gives you a jump on um you know figuring out um what your model is gonna be when you manage the kid in the i c u right so that you don't have to start all over again with fresh data right like you're not starting with a blank page, you have the information about how the child is behaving in a circum circumstance. And it may change, you know, relatively rapidly, but at least you have some place to start. And that I think that information can be pretty useful. Yeah.
1: Um, that's that's how I always advertise cardiac anesthesia to my fellows who might not think to spend more time with your colleagues and you uh, really the minute to minute physiology at one end. And then our colleagues in cardiology and ACHD and heart failure and transplant sort of the months to years, and so the cardiac intensive care person in the middle of that.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a very that's a very good analogy, because the you know when the ICU part becomes um, it becomes more complicated because you've got other intervening issues that may not have been issues in the operating room, right? You may have bleeding that wasn't a problem in the operating room. You have, you know, time-related deterioration in function. You've got time-related deterioration in pulmonary function. Um, You know, there's a whole bunch of things going on um, which change the model, right? The model from the OR may not have included, you know, a massive amount of intrapulmonary shunt, or bad VQ mismatch, or horrible lung compliance, um, you know, which now changes the model. But I, but I think you know, using the info that you get from those guys is really important. And you know, from our, from the cardiac anesthesia end, they have an obligation to articulate, um, you know, what they think the model is, rather than just you know dumping the kid and, you know, giving a bunch of volume before you walk out the door or something like that, right? Nobody wants to see that happen. I mean, I don't know anybody that does that, but you hear things like that. Um,
0: but I often do ask them like what C V P is the kid does the kid like and how does he respond to fluid and how much increment of fluid or what's the heart rate been, what's the end title been? And just to get a better sense of, of the child. We're gonna briefly interrupt this episode to thank the sponsor of this episode. I'd like to thank the sponsors of this episode, Hagen CPA and Wealth Advisors. Hagen CPA and Wealth Advisors is a comprehensive financial services firm comprised of accounting, tax, and wealth management serving individuals and families throughout the country. For over 50 years, Traphagen CPAs and Wealth Advisors has served as a dynamic leader and provider of financial services. Unlike traditional financial advisory firms, their accounting team specializes in taxation, financial reporting, and consulting services, including financing and M&A. Their Wealth Management team manages client investments, assets, and provides comprehensive estate tax and financial planning services. I just w- did want to ask you one final question. Just having so many years at Boston and having worked with so many cardiac surgeons and newer ones as well, what do you think exemplifies an excellent cardiac surgeon?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I think um you know for them to do their job well there there's a component there are certain instances um in the course of an operation for and I don't mean this in a bad way where um they they need to be narcissistic in the sense that for periods of time everybody's reality Needs to be the reality that they perceive because they have information about things that nobody else has. And so I think they have to use those intervals really judiciously. Um, there, you know, that approach <laughs> to medicine is not applicable across the entire length of a child's, um, Course in the, you know, after a before, during, or after an operation. Um, And so I think the good ones understand that. And I think they also understand, you know, I've heard surgeons describe, you know, things that they like kind of in three categories, right? There are things that are not negotiable, there are things that they have a preference about, but are negotiable, and there are things that they don't give a crap about. And I think it's, you know, useful to get a sense for each of them what those things are. The re- the reasonable ones, and most of them are very reasonable. You you can parse that out, and you can argue that the things that aren't negotiable you know, may not be entirely reasonable, but that's a conversation for another day, right? That's based on, you know, who knows, bad events or things that they honestly truly believe are non-negotiable, and that's fine. I mean, you can work with that as long as, you know, everything isn't in that category. Um, and, you know, I mean, their training is such, by the time they get to do it, they're all meticulous and thoughtful. Um you know, you'd like to have, you know, be doing the case with the people that, you know, don't have a lot of bleeding. But, um, you know, as many cardiac surgeons as I've seen and worked with over a lot of years, I, you know, that's not always entirely predictable, even just watching, you know, what they do. Um, I don't think, you know, that's necessarily a requirement, but it's nice. And then I think, you know, the other thing is they have to be open to um other people's perspective. They just have to be you know, they have they too have a model in their head, but they need to be willing to modify their model based on new data, right? I mean, that's how science works, right? You don't ignore new data cuz it doesn't fit the model. You change the model to incorporate the data that you believe. So I think, you know, the good ones are capable of doing that. Um, th- you know, the other thing I think, I've the older I get, the more I appreciate the enormous responsibility they have to. And I don't think people necessarily understand that, that the burden of, you know, taking somebody's baby and making a commitment to operate on them and make them whole is a really enormous commitment. And I think you have to be respectful of that and, you know, the way that would make you feel if you made that kind of a pact with a family. Um, I mean, we all do in a way. I mean, you do it in the ICU, we do it as anesthesiologists, but it's it's not really the same um, as taking on, you know, that enormous amount of responsibility and being the name and the face of that. So, I'm much more inclined to, you know, cut them slack on um, projecting anxiety or being frustrated or that kind of thing. Um, I know that's hard to do, but I think it's gotten easier for me anyway as I've gotten older because I understand that burden a little better. Totally agree. It's a huge burden, huge responsibility.
1: and want you to give them that grace. you tend to get that mirrored back at you on you when they actually split so the surgeons that I had to play with that well, i think with that we'll come to a close and really great yeah
0: thank you so much it's yeah. you're welcome lightning.
1: and to all our listeners thank you for listening to the pcics podcast please don't forget to follow us on the newly named x facebook and instagram and please subscribe to this podcast on apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts please visit our website PCIS.org where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Do Know by Grapes was used under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License.